What's happening, TRP podcast listeners? Thank you so much for carving out some time of your day, of your drive, of your gym time, your run, whatever it is that you're doing. Thanks for hanging out with us. We are in week seven of our sermon series, James the Sage, James, the brother of Jesus, having internalized the teachings of Jesus, is now repackaging those teachings for a new audience, a a Jewish Christian audience in the first century. Now, last week, I read a lot of the text, and we ended up talking about one phrase, and it became sort of a, a jumping off point for me to wax philosophical and uh, theoretical and all sorts of beautiful things that that pastors do. Today, I'd like to look at that passage again and uh, do it the justice that it deserves. Okay, so again, this is a long set of texts. We're going to go from chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of the first chapter. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read that for you, and then and then we'll get into it. Although, you should know going into it, there's no way on earth that we're going to uh, uncover every rock in this passage. We can't explore all of the things, so I would encourage you to, to track along with me, and if something grabs your attention, to follow it, uh, to get a good study Bible, and to look into it, to ask questions. Feel free to email uh, me, uh, josh at restoresby.org. If you've got some pointed questions, I'd love to engage those. Okay, so our text for today is James chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 27. It says this, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word of God for the people of God. Now, as I mentioned last week, this passage is is absolutely loaded, and any of the wisdom sayings that are included here are worth an entire sermon. The first one, I think, feels most pertinent to me. James writes, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, I don't know if this is COVID-related or what, but for the last 38 years or so, I have been very easily angered. I I have to make a confession here. I told that joke to 
uh, to the people on, on the lawn on Sunday and it just bombed. I don't know if it's because they weren't listening or because they, they just weren't ready for that sort of level of comedy. I'm not sure what it was, but I know you trusty podcast listeners get get that. COVID has not been around that long, so my anger predates COVID. Get it? It's a good joke. Okay. Sometimes I walk over to Kate holding up my phone and, and show her a meme or a post or a news headline with the sole intent of launching into a passionate diatribe on how stupid things are now or how hypocritical we all are or why something so ridiculous has garnered so much attention. This this passion, let's call it. It also spills out into how I drive and how I watch my kids' soccer games. Uh, Kate had to put me in check a couple of weeks ago. I was watching Abe play in his U8 soccer game. U8, Abe is six. And he's still learning how to, you know, trap the ball, keep his head up, look around, make a good pass. Sometimes he he holds the ball a little bit too long. And, and this was this was unfolding before my eyes, and I was making noises on the sidelines like, oh, no, until yeah. finally Kate looked over at me, kind of hit me on the shoulder and said, you need to get it together. And if you can't watch without making all these noises, you've got to get out of here. So I have been doing some some reflecting on this. Uh, my therapist has been helping me. In fact, the last question I asked my therapist in our last session was, hey, why why do I make these noises? And he was like, well, Josh, we don't have enough time to, to fully unpack that. So we'll, we'll come back to it next time. So don't worry, I am, uh, I'm, I'm working through a lot of my my issues here, but it, it also, this, this passion, it, uh, it spills out into how I change the string on my weed whacker. Yeah. Okay. There's a story here a few weeks ago, you know, like when you're weed whacking and the, the string just keeps coming out. And it was like the second or third time I had just been doing the driveway, which sure user error, but I was, I was so peeved diplomatic word here. Uh, my neighbors certainly did not hear the local pastor at a loss for words as this was happening here. Um, I, I know that this is a bad pastor confession, but being slow to become angry, it's flown out the window for me, and it flew out a long time ago. Uh, this is something I've constantly been been battling and, and addressing. Worse, James continues and he writes that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is unfortunate because these meaningless situations aside, like the the driving and the the string on the weed whacker, all of that, I've tried to convince myself that my anger is is something like righteous indignation. You know how we kind of do this to to trick ourselves to think that the flaws that we have are actually uh, good, you know, like me calling this passion. This is hardly passion. This is just something else going on here. Uh, but I've, I've tried to liken this to righteous indignation. Like if I don't speak out against this heavily slanted meme on Facebook, then who is going to, you know, I've, I've got to make sure that everyone has the right information here. And to further deny introspection, I've thought of myself as something of a table turner you know, a la Jesus. There's so many tables for us to overturn. And here I'm referencing the story in the Gospels where Jesus enters the temple courts during Passover only to see people selling sacrificial animals and the money changers ripping off worshipers. There's a lot more going on in this story, but that's a that's a fine entryway for us. And then when Jesus sees this, he absolutely loses it. I mean, loses it. Jesus is not trying to listen, not, not in this story. He has heard 
enough, and it is time for him to go into action. He's only slow to speak uh, because according to Mark's gospel, Uh, Mark's version of this story, he goes into the temple courts, he looks around, he sees all the things that are happening, and then instead of going into action, as we know, where he's flipping over the tables and uh, making this big scene, he goes back to where he's staying and sleeps for the night. And then the next day, you know, after he's had a good eight hours and, you know, nice little breakfast, he goes back in and then he, he launches in to this to this scene, to this event, to this sign act, if you will. Even better, uh, according to the Gospel of John, he's slow to speak because when he sees all of the things that are happening in front of him, when he sees what's going down, he very casually and calmly goes off to the side and, you know, uh, just makes his own whip. Okay, I, I don't want this to be lost on us. First, if you haven't been tracking, these stories are very different in the way that they're told. John, this is a detail that is only uh, included in John's gospel, but it says, In the temple he found people selling cattle and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple. Now, we don't know what this looks like, but I love to just envision Jesus seething off to the side and braiding this this whip that he will soon use to drive out the money changers. Who knows if that's uh, what is happening here, but John seems to to tell us that he's he's gathering his wits about him, and he's slow to speak only because he's taking time to make a whip for himself. In James's wisdom, uh, he's certainly not saying that our faith should be devoid of righteous indignation, you know, when it when it actually is righteous. There are certainly things that we should be angry about, maybe foremost of all, injustice, um, prejudice, racism, the certain things that that uh, are at the very heart of God. Now, James is also not saying that Jesus was wrong for how he handled the money changers in the temple. He's not saying that Jesus should have taken a few more cleansing breaths and hosted a discussion forum on best practices and the exchange of money in the temple sacrificial rituals. Like he's, this is not happening for James. But James, I imagine if he saw me on most days on the sidelines of Abe's U8 soccer games, perhaps he would probably come alongside and reiterate bro, man, relax. Everyone needs to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. You're losing it. Get it together. Thankfully, it's not just general frustration that that James is concerned with. And here, I'm not trying to get myself off the hook. I clearly have some, some work to do. Remember, James is addressing a specific context, a weightier context than mine or many of ours, in fact. It is a context where his audience is suffering under economic exploitation or economic injustice. And some folks in the community have taken it upon themselves to respond violently. This, he says, does not bring the righteousness or justice of God. He's saying God's society cannot be established by violent or forceful means which leads to a big question with with current implications. If James is trying to restrain an angry reaction, if James is saying that violence is not the way, if, if James is telling his audience, and maybe us, to be slow to anger, then what are we to do when we see 
injustice? Or more pointedly, what are a people in real oppression to do with the injustices that they face? James sort of answers this for us as we continue in this text. He says, get rid of all moral filth. And perhaps here this means the anger and this uh, bent towards retaliation. He says, get rid of the evil that is so prevalent in you and humbly accept the word that is planted in you. This is important for our understanding. He's he's talking to to Jewish Christians. He's he's not talking to the world at large. He's talking to those who have had the word planted in them. Uh, it's probably the case that for James, what he's meaning by this, and this is a huge scholarly discussion, but it could be that what has been implanted in them is this perfect law, this royal law, this fulfillment of the law, which is to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. Humbly accept that. It sounds like what James is after is active nonviolence. It sounds like what James is after is loving your enemies. It sounds like what James is after is peace. Scott McKnight concludes, James is thinking in this passage about social harmony, and James's standard for that is, is loving relations with others. And justice is behavior and conditions that conform to that standard. Now, this all sounds very Jesus-y, which again makes good sense because Jesus was James's sage, James's teacher. And James was a good student. He internalized his teacher's wisdom and is now repackaging it for his audience. And Jesus talked a lot about anger. And Jesus talked a lot about loving your enemies. And Jesus, when, you know, he wasn't bringing or making homemade whips to the temple, he he modeled nonviolent revolution. But, you know, Jesus also did make homemade whips and bring them to the temple and he flipped over some tables and he yelled a bit and these acts somehow fit together in this larger view of social harmony so what do we do in our day to day how do we discern what is a table that needs to be overturned and what is a conversation to engage I have something very wise here in my in my notes, and I'm going to go ahead and read that to you, to this question. How do we discern this? I don't know. This is partly what, what wisdom is about, knowing what to do and when to do it. This is the task of wisdom. For example, in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4, it, it gives us this piece of wisdom. Proverbs, you know, it's this, this prototypical wisdom book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, people look to it. It kind of reads sometimes like um, fortune cookie wisdom, but we have all of these uh, aphorisms and these these wise sayings. And, and here's one that can very easily guide our lives. It says, do not answer fools according to their folly or you will be a fool yourself. Now let that guide you when you're online and people are saying really dumb dumb stuff. Uh, may this be something where don't answer fools according to their folly. Keep scrolling, uh, the author of Proverbs is, is saying. Don't reduce yourself to their level. Just let it be. Don't get your blood 
pressure rising. Don't let your heart rate go up. Just, just relax. Close the app. Go do something productive. Don't answer fools according to their folly. And then you go to the very next verse, the verse that is right next to to verse 4 here in chapter 26, and it says this, Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. Now, we have, we have two conflicting pieces of wisdom here, and that's the point. The Bible is not... Uh, a very clear guidebook on a lot of issues. For example, when you find yourself online and somebody says something very stupid, do you answer them, as verse 5 would say, or do you not answer them, as verse 4 would say? Do you keep scrolling, as verse 4 would say, or do you stop and then compose a strongly worded comment, which is sure to change someone's mind somewhere. Uh, certainly all the people that like that comment don't already agree with you, but is, is that your your MO here? Do you do what verse 5 says? Answer the fool according to their folly. Well, this is the whole point of wisdom, is knowing which of these passages to employ in a given situation, because sometimes fools need to be called out, and sometimes Things are just so silly that it's not worth your time. It's not worth your engagement. It's just not worth uh, the physical sort of responses that that you have. It's just close the app and then go do something productive. Go bake a batch of cookies or something. Now, despite our potential confusion over the course of our actions that we should take, the next section in James's letter, it seems to suggest quite strongly, in fact, that the confusion is not whether we act, it's it's how we act, right? So James writes, do not merely listen to the word. And again, here, you might want to equate this idea with the royal law of love, which he unpacks in chapter two, this love your neighbor as yourself. Do not merely listen to, to the word, to this, uh, to this teaching and deceive yourselves. Actually do what it says. Put it into practice here. Now, I don't think that when it says do not merely listen to the word, that's not talking about uh, when you read the Bible in the morning, do what it says, do what the word says. I I, I don't think this is what James is after here. Clearly, the context would not lead us to think in that way. So he's after something a little bit different here. Um, But for James, even if we are called to enact nonviolence, the Christian faith is not a silent faith. It's not a passive faith. It's not a sit back and wait for God to do something faith. It's not an actionless faith. It's not a faith that watches and waits. It's a faith that does. And don't confuse this also with the the wisdom to sometimes close the app. That's, That's different. This is something bigger. Don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Learn what it looks like to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is a faith that that gets its hands dirty. It's a faith that works. It's a faith that does. It's a faith that looks after orphans and widows in their distress and keeps oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a faith that loves actively, resolutely, tangibly, at cost. It's a faith that does not respond inappropriately, but it is a faith that responds 
nonetheless. When you read a book like James, it's it's difficult to shake um, current examples that, that are predictable, um, examples that are maybe political in nature, examples that are uh, social in, in nature. Like we have a lot of these issues uh, that might come to mind about how we are to do what the Word says. And I'm not wanting us here to become an issues-based church, but I also don't want us to avoid these issues that should be related to our faith. We live in a context where so many things that are Jesus issues have become labeled political issues or worse, partisan issues. Uh, it's it's things where we have um, reduced certain people's humanity to a piece of political propaganda when for any, I think this is the case, for any objective observer, which you can challenge that if you want because objective observers don't really exist, but for anyone who can remove themselves from the situation would say, well, actually, that just seems like something that Jesus would, would care about. Okay, I, I don't want us to be an issues-based church, but I want us not to lose sight of the Jesus-based issues in the world and how we should be responding to them. Here, here's an example, and this is this is low-hanging fruit, and uh, just just take it for what it is. Okay, but a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to guest lecture for a couple hours at a DC adjacent seminary on the broad topic of the Exodus and. Justice. This was a an institute for justice, and they were looking at certain texts in the Bible, and my assigned passage was uh, the book of Exodus. So we talked about God as the liberating God. We talked about the paradigmatic nature of the Exodus story and how it was reused throughout the Old Testament in times of uncertainty, sort of like, hey, God, you got us out of Egypt uh, way back when. Get us out of this too. Remember how you liberated and redeemed us back then. Do that again here and now. We see this all throughout the Psalms. They're, they're looking back to this exodus moment, this climactic moment in their history as if it was a paradigm for how God acts. God of the exodus becomes God of the exoduses. We also talked about the example of the Hebrew midwives who are, little known fact, the first named characters in the book. It's not the Pharaoh. It's not Moses. It's, it's two random Hebrew midwives. Uh, we talked about Moses' mom and sister and all of these characters in very different ways. They thumb their nose at the empire in order to save lives. They have no status. They have, uh, they're not part of the in-group, yet they say, nope, uh, we're not going to kill these baby boys because you tell us to. We are going to make a stand for, for life at great risk of their own lives. Now, this this conversation, it was, it was fun. I love talking about uh, this book. Uh, but it was also quite humbling. I was the only white person in the room, and here I was talking about MLK and James Cone and liberation theology like I know a whole lot about it. For me, it's it seems more theoretical about how God identifies with the oppressed when, in fact, I really haven't been oppressed in in my life uh, haven't uh, faced a lot of the things that maybe folks that were listening to me rattle on have faced in their own lives I was hearing stories of of hurt and pain from them stories that were very dissimilar from my own 
stories, stories where I could have easily been in the oppressive role of a modern day Pharaoh. And at the end of the class, one student raised her hand. I was teaching uh, virtually, but still put her hand up on the screen so I could see it. And she says this to me. She said, the church where I work, it's pretty large and they haven't said much about any of the things that are going on in our country. So I asked them about their views on Black Lives Matter. And she went on to to characterize this question. She said, I, I didn't want their statement on the organization because I know that in some circles of church life, that's a really um, weighty question because of some of the commitments that the organization has. I really just wanted to know about how they viewed the sentiment behind it. I wanted to know why they've been so quiet about the things that have been going on. They, they're they large and they have a huge opportunity for influence. She's asking this question. And then she says, uh, when she asked them this, they responded by saying to her, well, we aren't a social justice church. She continued, I, I don't know if there's a question here. I, I really just wanted to talk and, and I don't know what to do. And I know, I know for a lot of us, this phrase, this social justice, it's, it's problematic uh, for people. It lacks a clear definition. A lot of times, sometimes it can be more partisan than we might like it to be. But again, I think sometimes we strip, uh, the Jesus issues that are embedded within because of how this phrase may have been used outside. For some Christians, uh, they just want to wash their hands of this discussion altogether. But I wonder if there's a deeper principle here that we could see. This woman, for example, she didn't she didn't want a woke pastor, whatever that means. She didn't want a five-week sermon series addressing current events. She didn't want flags to be raised. She didn't want statements uh, to be placed on a website. She didn't want a conciliatory Facebook post. She just wanted acknowledgement from her church leadership that they see her and others suffering. And what she got was, we aren't a social justice church with the implication. So we'll just go about our business continuing to talk about finances or relationships or uh, nothing of real significance that we see happening in our culture because we don't want to get too close to that political line. We certainly don't want to get close to a partisan line. So we just don't want to address, quote, social justice things. As a minister, I get it it's potentially costly to address anything of consequence these days. You're certainly going to ex- you're going to upset someone by saying anything. You're going to be misrepresented if you say anything because if you're this then you're not that. That seems to be how we function in our society these days. So it's safer to address things that are you know, safer Things like money, sex, relationships, prayer, work, your thought life, or the principle of loving people. It's not as though these things shouldn't be talked about. They're all important. Sex, money, relationships, prayer, all that. They're important things. But I fear that we have for too long divorced our faith from the public square. I fear that we have individualized Christianity. 
I fear that we have spiritualized Christianity. And this is not James's context. This is not what James is talking about. This is not the sort of spirituality that he's attempting to teach his followers. I can't imagine Jesus or James hearing this woman talk about her situation and saying, what are your thoughts on these things? And having either of them respond, sorry, yeah, you know, I mean, that's... That's a tough one because it's 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 pretty partisan. Uh, we're not a social justice movement. I can't see Jesus or James saying that, which begs the question: Why are we responding this way to our people? If we need something less political or less controversial to consider, because clearly this this one's charged. Uh, there's a lot of different viewpoints on this. I get that. There there's a lot of. Um, of, of things that, that factor into how we address or, or how we don't address certain things that are happening in our society. So if we need something less political or less controversial, then how about this? Why aren't we as a community, as a church, trying to love our enemies? Why, why aren't we actively engaged in relationships with people who don't think like us? Why aren't we doing the difficult work of advocacy? And TRP, I'm, I'm going to call us out here. We talk a lot about these things. It's not weird for you to hear me say, Black Lives Matter. And I think most of you understand what that means. For me, that's not an anti-cop statement. Uh, for me, that is the, a, a truth that black lives actually matter, even if it seems like in our society or seems might be a strong word, even if it is not in our society, uh, something that is believed and shared by all people. I think that's a Jesus issue. We are all endowed with the image and likeness of the most high God and nothing, ethnicities included, can can stop that from being the case. We should love our neighbors regardless of race, orientation, age, gender. We should love our neighbors as ourselves. But what does that look like for us to actually do? So is it just a principle that we talk about or is it something that we actually do? Why, why have we transformed a religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless into a consumer product that allows us to get what we need but doesn't really demand a whole lot from us? Why have we gone so far away from helping the widows and the orphans in their distress to keeping ourselves uh, from being polluted by the world. And here that does not mean us hiding away and not watching Netflix. It, it's something completely separate. Why, why haven't our conversations about the widows and the orphans and the marginalized and the oppressed, why, has, why haven't that uh, manifested into tangible outreach and mission to them? Again, this is, this is TRP specific here. We talk a lot about these things, but what has been the proof in the pudding other than the things that we just keep saying over and over? Why have we become so complacent? Is it COVID related? Is it our, our collective busyness? Is it the fact that we're at the soccer fields and then we're at practice and then we're at school and then we're at here and then we're there and we're all over the place and, and we're, we're just run ragged. So by the time it's not our family's stuff, we're just dead on our feet. We just need to sit in front of 
in front of the TV and fall asleep in five minutes and wake up at 1.30 in the morning and then crawl into bed. Not that I know anything about that, of course. Why have we fallen into inactivity? James says, do not merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Now, here's a question. If we did this, if we actually put the word into practice, if we loved God with everything that we have and we loved our neighbor as ourselves, and, and, and that was something that actually motivated how, how we live, what sort of church might we become? Would the world around us take note? Would it make any difference at all? In my original notes here, I, I say, I hope so. And I think, I think that's too weak. It would. So why in the world aren't we doing that? Mm-hmm.